Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for 10 to 34-year-olds in Connecticut. Coming up, we'll hear how some schools are addressing the issue with students and staff. It's National Suicide Prevention Week. Today, where we live, we'll talk with people who've lost loved ones, and we'll find out from mental health professionals the best way to talk about this issue, whether it's in the media, in schools, or at home. Have you been affected by suicide? Where did you turn for support? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, if you or someone you know is at risk, here's the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. It's 1-800-273-TALK. That's 273-8255. There's also the Crisis Text Line. You can text TALK to 741-741. In Connecticut, you can also call 211. Now, coming up, we'll hear from a psychiatrist from St. Francis Hospital in Hartford and a psychologist from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. They'll be here to help answer your questions. That's later. Now, first, I want to welcome to the show Ellen Koenig. She studied religion at Yale Divinity School. She now works at Commonweal Magazine in New York City. She joins us today from NPR Studios in New York. Ellen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, we, we asked you to come on because uh, you uh, were very open in a, an article that you wrote for Yale Divinity School about your experience losing your brother, Louis, uh, two years ago this month. Can you tell us about him? Yeah, I would love to. Um, My brother uh, passed away two years ago, this fall, September 2nd. Um, And uh, he, I mean, he's an incredible guy. Um, He was my big brother, um, eight years older than me. And, um, you know, very musically inclined, very creative, very cool, like sort of the kind of guy that, um, and maybe this is true for all all big brothers and all little sisters, but um, somebody I always wanted to win the approval of, um, you know, he was just uh, an an awesome guy, um, and uh, I mean, clever, creative, a great writer, a great musician, um, <clears throat> the the whole range of of interesting things. Um, I wish I could show you all pictures and you know pull out my wallet and. <laughs> Tell us about that day when you heard the news. You were just starting uh, the the first day of your last semester at Yale. That's right. Um, so I was um, finishing my final semester at Yale Divinity School, finishing my master's there. And um, I actually wasn't on campus that day. I had signed a lease on a new apartment in New York City where I was going to be commuting for my last semester. Um, and uh, the morning started out very normal. Um, it was kind of a strange, jarring experience because the day began very regular. Um, I was I got coffee at a local coffee shop. Um, I had been texting friends about upcoming classes we were going to take together. Um, and then my sister called from Minnesota um, and uh, and told me that Lou had passed away. Um, uh, I remember that day because the feeling of of franticness, um, the 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 feeling of um, that jarring reality, something that you you don't 
believe can be true, somebody's telling you is true. Um, I, I remember getting in a cab, trying to find my other, my, I have a twin sister who lived in the city here with me. Um, I remember getting in a cab and trying to get to her. And New York traffic um, is, is famous, but it seemed out to get me that day in particular. Like every, every part of the experience is extremely vivid in a very surreal, almost dreamlike way. Um, to, because it, I learned something, I found something out that I didn't believe could be true. I thought it was impossible that that could be true. I'm sorry that you lost uh, your brother. Um, part of the reason we wanted uh, to hear a personal story, because everyone's story is different. And uh, how did you get through the grieving process? We hear some stories where uh, if someone uh, loses someone in their family or a friend, uh, this uh, sudden death uh, by suicide can come as a shock. Uh, for your yeah. brother, uh, was this something that um, that had ha- that you felt like this was going to happen based on um, his health in previous years? I mean, how, can you give us a little bit more about um, your brother's yeah. story? Sure. Um, he he had struggled with depression and alcoholism, um, so it's it's funny to say that it was a shock because in many ways it also was always a, it was a possibility for a long time, but it was a possibility that um, none of us wanted to concede to. Um, and so we had been working with with my brother Lou. Um, we had really open conversations as a family. Um, he, he wanted to feel better. He wanted to get better. He worked really hard to get better. Um, and all of us worked really hard to give him resources and support and love. Um, and so in some senses, in an interesting, it, it feels strange to say that it wasn't shocking because at the same time, it's ex- extremely shocking. But we knew he was struggling. Um, we knew he had um, a disease. Um, and so uh, at the same time, you know, when somebody is suffering with cancer, you sort of know it's possible that they won't improve, but you don't face that reality until you have to. Um, and with mental illness, I'm not sure that it ever comes to a point where you believe it's it's going to take someone's life. Um, so we knew, and also we really didn't want to know that this was possible. You immediately went home uh, to family. Uh, who was your who were part was who was part of your support network, and and did you know where to turn uh, as you grieved? Oh, there was I. I, I I went home immediately. Um, my sister and I and my husband um, were all back in Minnesota very quickly after we found out. Um, and there, no, you know, a professor of mine at the Divinity School at Yale, um, she once said, uh, you know, grief and, and suffering is not something we were really made for. You know, you can't do it very well. And that was reassuring to me, actually. That was after the fact, but it did sort of um, help explain the the really fumbling experience of grief that uh, you can't get it right. It doesn't, I don't, even if somebody had laid out for me resources in advance, I wouldn't have known how to use them, how to take advantage of them. And it's not because those things don't make sense at the time. It's because um, grief is such an awkward experience. Um, It's hard to um, do what you're supposed to do or find what you need to find at the time. And so what I relied on and I think what my family relied on was the very aggressive love of other people in our lives. We we basically 
went to my parents' home, and for about a week, people were in and out of the house to come and share stories with us and to grieve and to cry and to laugh and to eat a lot of food. People did not stop feeding us, which is just very Midwestern. Um, and so it was a, a very community-oriented experience of grief, and I'm really grateful for that because I don't think I could have articulated that that's what, I, that's what I needed to help begin to process my brother's life and my brother's death. And what about your parents and siblings? How did they move through the process? Oh, all very differently, um, which is another reason that grief can be so awkward. Um, but, but everybody seems to be doing well, and we um, we check in with each other quite a bit. Um, we have a big family text thread that it, we have a photo sharing stream. My nieces are, you know, the, the main feature of, of all of these photos and sh uh, story sharing. And we we regularly sort of check in with each other, maybe even more than is needed. But um, it everybody seems to have found a path that's working for them. And interestingly, um, everybody's path looks a little bit different. So um, for me, it was a therapy, one-on-one -on -one therapy. Um, for others in my family, it has been... Um, uh, kind of group conversations, especially related to um, loss of a loved one by suicide. Um, others have turned to writing. Others have turned to, um, you know, meditation. And so it's actually been really exciting to see, I, I shouldn't say exciting, but really interesting and sort of uplifting to see the different ways that we've supported each other in our individual processing and in our, co our common processing of grief. This is where we live. Uh, today we're talking about suicide. That's because it's National Suicide Prevention Week. Uh, with us from uh, NPR Studios in New York is Ellen Konek. Uh, she studied religion at Yale Divinity School, and she now works at Commonweal Magazine in New York City. Uh, she lost her brother, Louis, two years ago to suicide. Um, I mentioned uh, support uh, for you, um, Ellen. You know, it's been two years. When did you feel comfortable talking about um, your story, your family's story, your brother's story? Because we, we know with mental illness, there is stigma associated with it, and not everyone knows how to talk about suicide, or some people feel this is, pr this is private, that uh, we shouldn't be talking about it. So can you give us your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, right from the start, um, my family wanted to talk about it. Um, and we I, I, I really wouldn't go about publicizing anything if it were uncomfortable at all for, for my parents or for my, my other siblings. But right away, we wanted to say suicide out loud because of the stigma, um, to confront the stigma, and also because we're not ashamed of Lou. Um, the, he, he struggled and he fought very hard, and his life is not in any way defined by or reduced to his death. But we have to talk about the way he died because other people who are struggling with this or families who are tempted to feel shame about their loved one, that has to change culturally. Um, and it is a tricky situation. I appreciate that you kind of brought up that this is sensitive and it's difficult to do right. Um, people might think that I'm doing it wrong, which, which I, I might be, you know, making mistakes here and there um, about how to talk about it openly. But the trickiest thing, I think, is that it needs to be talked about 
without glamorizing the struggle and without demonizing the person who struggles. Um, I don't want my brother's life to be defined by the fact that he died by suicide. But I also want to be able to talk about suicide publicly so that people don't think they have to be, um, that it's not a secret um, that festers the way that it has festered in the United States for so long. I mentioned you were a student uh, from, at Yale Divinity School. Uh, this happened again at the start of your final uh, year at the at, at um, in grad school. How did the the community, your school community, support you? Uh, what were the things that were helpful? What were the things that were unhelpful? Yeah, um, goodness, my I, I felt so blessed and so lucky to be um, at the Div- the Divinity School um, during the grief. I mean, um, the the essay that. Um, you mentioned at the start of this, um, one of the, the final things that I say in is is that if, if a person must go through the worst things in life, I felt lucky to have gone through them at Yale Divinity. And and I would repeat that here. Um, the, the community at Yale is so um, eager to be generous and supportive and loving. Um, and the things that, I mean, concretely speaking, the things that um, really helped me um, were access to therapy, um, people who were not afraid to ask me how I was doing. Um, this is a funny thing, too, um, and I think this is not just grief or uh, related to suicide, but all kinds of grief. People have the impression that you shouldn't ask how a person's doing because you might remind them that they're suffering and they might have forgotten. <laughs> that's that's the funny thing. We, we never forget. <laughs> um, and so um, it, it's common that people don't want to bring up um, or, or they don't want to have to remind you that you recently went through something terrible. But in fact, it, it feels really nice to know that other people remember and that you're not alone in your grief, that you're not isolated by this secret you're keeping. So I think that was one of the major things that I experienced at Yale was people regularly checking in with me and saying my brother's name to me. They would say, "How is Lou? Like, how how is your family? How is um, how is your relationship with Lou? Has it changed? Um, how are your memories? Um, tell me about him. Tell me stories about him." Um, that is an incredibly liberating feeling because grief can be such an isolating experience. Uh, can I ask how your faith uh, has helped you uh, through this process? And at times, you know, we, we mentioned stigma earlier. You know, I, I was raised Catholic, uh, you know, as a child growing up. And I remember uh, when we think about stigma and our perceptions of, of something like suicide, sometimes even faith traditions, that are the religious beliefs or the teachings. I remember, you know, hearing in CCD that, you know, suicide is wrong. It's a sin. And how we carry this with us into our adulthood. I'm just wondering how you work through that. Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, I think that my faith gave me a lot of resources for processing, um, but it didn't give me answers uh, that would resolve or sort of alleviate any suffering. And I think that's really important to say because um, religion and and spirituality in general, um, they give us ways to... um, find meaning, um, but they don't make uh, suffering go away. And and some of the cheap tricks of religion, which I'm, <laughs> I know them well, despite being a, a religious person and somebody who studied religion for a long time and works at a religious magazine, um, 
there are a lot of cheap tricks when it comes to religion, like saying it's okay because because of heaven, or it's all it's all okay because God God's will, or God knows what God's doing, and that's that doesn't make it hurt less. It it's not good enough. Um, of uh, it's not good enough to say that, and that's not a good enough response from faith traditions. Um, and so I think my faith helped me have to face um, this feeling of deep emptiness and uh, and look at that empty space and and decide to meet God there in addition to meeting God in all the happy places we often believe we find God. Um, and so in some ways it really, really changed and sort of radicalized like um, my perception of of where God might dwell. Um, I I appreciate too the question the the other half of this question. Um, the I think tra- faith traditions and religions, um, Catholicism in particular for sure, have really helped to demonize mental health. Um, one of the reasons that I feel really strongly about saying that my brother died by suicide and not that he committed suicide or that he killed himself um, is because these things. Um, are part of a really old tradition of um, ascribing sin to the person who's suffering, who's suffering, instead of trying to get them help, um, uh, or instead of looking at them as somebody who's a, a, a victim to a certain kind of disease. Um, historically, there's been a long tradition of of demonizing the person and calling their behavior sinful, and that that is wrong. It, it's just plain wrong. Um, and fortunately, the church doesn't, the Catholic church, and I don't know, I can't speak to a lot of other religious traditions, doesn't, uh, no longer calls suicide a sin um, because um, advancements in mental health have, uh, they, they've taken into consideration advancements in our own understanding of mental health and mental diseases. Um, so thank goodness for that. But culturally, it's still very, very present um, in the way that Christians in particular talk about suicide. And I think that uh, results in a lot more shame around the issue. It results in families not knowing how to get help and people who are suffering with depression or addiction to um, feel like they can't turn to resources because because this cultural sort of impression that it's wrong mm-hmm. instead of that it's a disease. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with Ellen Konek, uh, who studied religion at Yale Divinity School. She now lives and works in New York City. Uh, She lost her brother, Louis, to suicide two years ago. We're talking about this today because it's National Suicide Prevention Week. And coming up, we're going to have a psychiatrist and a psychologist join our conversation to answer your questions. What are the best ways to raise awareness about mental health and efforts to prevent suicide? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. This
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We're talking about suicide today during National Suicide Prevention Week. We wanted to hear about efforts to raise awareness about this issue. It impacts many Americans. In fact, the overall suicide rate in the U.S. rose by 24 percent from 1999 to 2014. That's according to the National Center for Health Statistics. If you or someone you know is in crisis, there's a National Suicide Prevention Hotline. It's 1-800-273-TALK. You can also text a crisis line by texting TALK to 741-741. In Connecticut, you can get resources at 211. Now, have you lost a friend or loved one to suicide? What helped you through your grief process? What information do you wish you'd known to help you during this time? You can join the conversation. Again, that number, 860-275-7266. You can tweet at us at Where We Live. Find us on Facebook at Where We Live. With us today from NPR Studios in New York is Ellen Konek, who lost her brother, Louis, to suicide. She recently graduated from Yale Divinity School. She now works and lives in New York City. And in studio with us now is Dr. Irfan Munawar, who's chairman and director of St. Francis Behavioral Health. Welcome to the show, Dr. Munawar. Sure. Thank you for that to be the program. And also on the phone with us, Dr. Doreen Marshall, psychologist and vice president of programs at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Uh, Doreen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to bring up the question because we were talking about, you know, how we should do this show. Um, you know, as journalists, we often uh, try to figure out, you know, what's the best way to, to cover suicide and talk about suicide prevention um, in a way that not only tells a story, but that we're sensitive uh, to the people in that story, the people we're talking about. So I guess my first question to both of you is, you know, what's the best way to talk about suicide? I'll begin with you again, Doreen Marshall from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Thank you, and thanks for having me. Um, I think when we talk about suicide publicly, we really have to um, do it in a way that's responsible. Um, and one of those ways is by following uh, media established media guidelines for talking about suicide. In the media, it's really important that we talk about suicide in a way that abstains from talking about it graphically or in a way that sensationalizes or kind of glamorizes the suicide death. We really want people to understand about suicide that um, it often connects to mental health concerns and that those are treatable. So talking about it in a way that also helps connect people to health and really encourages people to get help if they're struggling with mental health concerns is really a responsible way to talk about it. Uh, Dr. Munawar. Sure. Uh, thank you. Uh, I think, uh, let me start by saying that it is a very sensitive topic, just the way Dr. Marshall has mentioned uh, that is, uh, we have to do it in a, in a sensitive manner. Uh, I think that there is, there is no other way approaching this topic uh, other than that, that you have to be non-judgmental. You have to be totally unbiased. And the best way is just asking a direct question. Are you thinking about committing suicide? Are you hurting? How can I help you? And that is the best way uh, uh, to, to handle that situation. Um, um, not a lot of people want to talk about it. There is also a myth that if you ask the question or you bring up the topic of suicide with somebody, who is suffering from depression or in general, that will give them ideas. However, the research tells us the opposite. Actually, talking about suicide brings relief, it prevents life, and 
uh, and and that is the only best way to prevent it. What about this idea? Uh, as you're, again, you're a psychiatrist. We've heard about this term. I've read about it. It's suicide contagion. And when we talk about when, when we're talking about this issue, the population's most at risk. And depending on that particular population. When you do talk about it, or if you know someone who has um, died by suicide, how that impacts a person? Uh, it is definitely a very devastating whenever it happens. Um, while the statistics tell us that suicide is the tenth leading cause of death overall in the United States, uh, when we look at the age statistics between the ages of ten to thirty-four, it is the second leading cause of death. And uh, whenever this happens, it creates is a wave of helpless, helplessness. It brings in sadness, depression, makes the feeling worse and heightened. And it is pretty common as a child psychiatrist for me to see that many teenagers w will pick up on this and and this feelings that maybe this is the best way to go. Uh, and uh, and uh, again, there's no other best way other than to, to talk about it to help prevent it. You mentioned you're a child psychiatrist. Among uh, young people, if they know someone who has died in this way, how likely is that to impact their likelihood of, of ideation? It, is, uh, uh, it, it, it can affect in many different ways. Um, for example, if... Uh, uh, somebody's a family member or a parent has passed away, uh, not only just by, by statistics, their chances of committing suicide goes by four, four, per uh, four points, but it also indicates their own uh, depression and suffering, which also is enhanced. They also have lost their support. Um, now, if when we look at suicide, suicide is something that happens to individual who are not only suffering from mental illness, but in addition to that, those individuals are also feeling a lack of connectedness. They're feeling isolated. They're feeling helpless. And and when we when when a death happens by suicide, uh, it is such an unnatural phenomena that it just devastates and leaves things uh, in a, such a manner that everything gets uh, heightened, worse, and uh, leads to further damage to the mental health of the person and, and poor decision-making. Uh, this is where we live. Today we're talking about suicide because it's National Suicide Prevention Week. With me in studio, Dr. Irfan Munawar, Chairman and Director of St. Francis Behavioral Health. On the phone with us, Dr. Doreen Marshall, psychologist and Vice President of Programs at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Uh, Dr. Marshall, uh, also, I had said earlier in the show that uh, based on uh, the national um, Center for Health Statistics that the suicide rate in the U.S. has grown um, from 99 to 2014. What are the what are the reasons? What are the causes? I know your foundation does a lot of research into this. That, that's a great question, and I think we're trying to understand why the rate has gone up. Um, one of the things we have seen is that um, the rate has gone up more substantially within certain subgroups. So um, middle-aged men, for example, are a subgroup where the rate has climbed um, more dramatically than in other groups. And so trying to understand why that is the case has really been one of the focuses of our foundation. Um, we fund quite a bit of research focused on suicide, and, and part of that is also trying to understand what types of things might be leading to increase. 
Um, certainly, you know, we pay attention to the role of mental health, but we also look at things that may contribute to suicide, such as, um, you know, a person's access to means or their reluctance to seek help, those other factors that can also um, influence a suicide outcome. I want to take some calls now. Uh, Maureen's calling from Torrington. Maureen, you're on the show. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I wanted to call because I have a 13-year-old daughter who is currently in a Hartford psychiatric unit um, for acting upon suicidal ideations, and she's 13. Um, she's adopted, and she had a very traumatic start in life as my niece and watching her mother be killed. The thing that we've struggled with is having a daughter who's really been suicidal since the age of four, trying to access appropriate early condition-specific psychiatric treatment for her has been impossible. And so her suicidal thoughts are really a symptom of much deeper-rooted mental illness, rooted in, in both organic, perhaps, as well as environmental factors that she was exposed to, and trying to get her the treatment she needs has led to her now being 13 and having really a greater capacity to act upon those suicidal thoughts and ideations that she's really had for several years. And so my question, I guess, is how does a parent who recognizes her child's needs able to really reach out and get the services they need through the system that we currently have in the state of Connecticut. Great question, Maureen. Thank you for calling. I'll let Dr. Munawar uh, take that question because we hear that often uh, among uh, many different facets of mental health uh, treatment and support. There aren't enough beds or services for young people. What is out there? What are, where are the gaps? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, and definitely in state of Connecticut in the present day, uh, despite having all the advancement and despite having so much of knowledge, we are still struggling with providing the right level of care to many of our children who are in need of help. Um, there are many facets of layers of problems which are which are present, and certainly not the not enough time uh, in this uh, particular uh, show to discuss all of them. Uh, I, I think the uh, the major challenge is retention of child psychiatrists in state of Connecticut, which has been uh, a major problem even in the last few years. My own uh, close friends have moved out of state for different reasons. Um, and uh, more efforts certainly need to be done to uh, retain psychiatrists, uh, have some programs which can help psychiatrists settle down in Connecticut. Majority of the psychiatrists who graduate from uh, the fellowship programs here in Connecticut, they end up moving out of state. Uh, now, by saying that, still there is, there are there is a hope. There are a lot of resources available, uh, and uh, starting with the suicide hotline to calling two one one, reaching out to the local mental health authorities, uh, DCF voluntary services, reaching out to DMS. These are all our different organizations and places which can provide help and in in this difficult time. But if there um, aren't any available beds and someone needs to go back home or back to um, the place that they were, I mean, that makes is that uh, increase their chances or vulnerability? Uh, yes and no. Um, uh, 
However, let me say it. I, I like to be very hopeful in whichever circumstances we are in. Uh, while things are difficult and the availability of beds and providers who can help is, uh, is uh, tight and uh, is, uh, there are a lot of delays and waiting lines, uh, still we can be there. We can do a lot for our loved ones who are suffering from uh, depression, suicide. So let me go back to something I said earlier and say that, that, that our help start by asking and then the next most important step is that, that we have to keep them safe, which means that, that we have to be there for them. We have to uh, make sure that we are paying them enough attention. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, a lack of connectedness is one of the reasons actually many teenagers, for example, they will attempt suicide. So making them feel that you are connected to them, you are there for them, and you, you are keeping them safe can go a long way. Let me add another uh, very important point in it that the goal in providing the help is to increase the the distance between the uh, um, between the person and the method of choice they have. If you we increase the time and distance uh, in between these two uh, points, the chances that the person will commit suicide is much less likely. Majority of the individuals who think of committing a suicide or having a very strong idea or a plan, they will abort their attempt. They will think of something else if they are connected to somebody immediately. And as they are talking to that person, as they are connected and more and more time passes by, the chances that they will actually act on those thoughts becomes very small. And I think that is very critical. And that is why, as by that, and that is we can only do by asking them how they are doing, are they having thought of suicide, by keeping them safe, by being there for them, and by helping them connect to different services. And not only that, we should also do a follow-up as well, that how are you feeling now after all this? I wanted to go back to Dr. Doreen Marshall from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. What about the role of social media in all of this, uh, Dr. Marshall, especially when we're talking about young people? Um, Dr. Munawar mentioned uh, uh, when they are feeling isolated, um, you know, it's not, it doesn't help the situation. And I'm, I'm curious about the role social media can play. Social media is a bit of a mixed bag um, when it comes to people's risks. So in some instances, social media provides a, a connection, and we have seen many instances of people reaching out and, and getting help um, via social media. At the same time, um, I think social media, particularly in the teenage years, can provide kind of a skewed sense of comparison. So a depressed teenager that's viewing social media and feeling like, they're getting a picture of other people's lives going very well and theirs does not feel like it's going well um, can kind of actually lead to, to more of a sense of isolation or negative self-evaluation. So it is mixed, you know, and what we often tell parents is that if you have a teenager in particular at risk, it's important to monitor their social media um, and be vigilant about, you know, posts that might um, indicate that the teen is struggling or that the teen is trying to reach out. So again, it's, it's a bit of a mixed bag, um, and it's something we pay a lot of attention to in terms of suicide prevention. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, Steve is calling from Milford. Steve, you're on the show. 
Steve, are you there? Oh, it doesn't look like uh, Steve uh, can hear us. So um, I, I wanted to, to go back to our, our first guest, uh, Ellen Konek, uh, who's uh, on the line with us from NPR Studios in New York. And we've been talking to some experts, uh, mental health uh, professionals, Ellen, about um, ways to help prevent suicide, uh, ways to help um, help people who may be struggling. And I'm curious if I, I just wanted to go back to you in terms of, as you're listening to this, uh, you know, your reactions and, again, where people can go in terms of, of support groups. What did you find uh, as uh, as you were dealing, again, with the losing your brother? Yeah. Um, first, I've really enjoyed listening to um, both of these experts speak just really with great accuracy and great tenderness on, on this subject. Um I um, what I'm hearing is that the the need for community, for sensitivity, um, for directness, um, and and for just kind of a very assertive support and love is is crucial not only to somebody who's struggling with um, a mental health disease or an addiction or something, um, but also for people who are experiencing grief after the fact. Um, I, I didn't know the statistic that once somebody has lost a loved one to suicide, the their their own risk of suicide is higher. I, I hadn't heard that, um, but I I can understand that, which is one one of the reasons why I think support afterward is really important. And some of the resources I turned to, um, I mean, they're myriad. Um, I um, went to therapy, um, which I mentioned earlier, and that was really crucial for me. Um, I turned to writing, and um, and and also have uh, come from a big family, and who and we we talked a lot too, and processed a lot together. Um, but since then, I've actually had a lot of interesting experiences and opportunities for um, communal, uh, not exactly communal therapy, but kind of um, communal sessions where. Um, grief is on the table, which oftentimes in public discourse, it's really off the table. It's very uncomfortable for people in grief and for people who worry about the the grieving of the person near them. Um, and so two of the things that come to mind immediately, um, uh, one, it was a, a support group that I, I attended a couple of, of meetings for in New York City that was just a, um, a support group for siblings who lost uh, uh, someone who lost a, a sibling to suicide. Um, that was really interesting because, again, the grief and the grief related specifically to suicide is so isolating. Um, and you you want to believe for a minute that you are the only one in the world who's ever gone through such a thing. Um, and even believing that uh, or feeling that, uh, it 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 adds kind of insult to injury. And so that this support group that I, I attended a couple of sessions of was really cathartic in a lot of ways to just hear that other people felt what I felt and um, experienced what I experienced and sometimes even went through things that were totally foreign to me. And in a weird way, I thought, oh, man, your your grief is so different than mine, and I'm actually com- more comfortable with my grief or my, my, my bout of suffering is something I can handle because when I look at yours, I think... That's something that I don't know if I could go through that. Um, I'm also part of this thing called the dinner party, um, or I've, I shouldn't say I'm part of it. I, I've attended it. And it's this very cool movement that's happening. Um, I think it was started on the West Coast somewhere. Um, but people in their 20s and 30s who've experienced 
the death of uh, somebody close, a, a parent, a sibling, or a best friend. Um, oftentimes people in their 20s and 30s haven't experienced great loss, um, but it's increasingly common, you know, in their 40s, 50s, 60s, this becomes something that happens with more regularity that you love, you lose somebody you're close with. Um, and so even the experience of being somebody who's young, who lost someone in a traumatic way. Um, so these dinner parties are really informal. They're just people getting together in various big cities for a meal. And again, grief is just on the table and you can talk about it or you don't have to. But the um, the common experience or the, the thing that you can talk about things that you didn't even know you might have in common with someone or you didn't know you wanted to talk about in process. And it's been really, really refreshing, actually. Well, I want to thank you, Ellen Konek, again, who joined us from NPR Studios in New York. Thank you for sharing uh, your story, uh, your very personal story. And, and, and we are sorry to hear the loss of your brother, Louis. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel in studio with us and, and on the phone, Dr. Irfan Unamar and Dr. Doreen Marshall. As we talk again about suicide awareness and prevention today, uh, one of the ways uh, lately that people are talking about suicide is uh, all related to a song by rapper Logic. Uh, his song, 1-800-273-8255. It's the number of the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. We're going to listen to a little bit of, of it as we go into break. Like my life ain't mine. I finally want to be alive. I finally want to be alive. I don't want to die today. I don't want to die. I finally want to be alive. I finally want to be alive. I don't want to die. I don't want to This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's uh, National Suicide Prevention Week. That's why we're focused on the issue today on today's show. Did you know in Connecticut, suicide is the leading cause of death among young people ages 10 to 34? With that in mind, how should schools address this issue when talking with young people? Uh, joining us right now on the, on the line is Dr. Jeffrey Vanderplug, Vice President for Mental Health Initiatives at Child Health and Development Institute of Connecticut, or CHDI. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Lucy. Uh, we're short on time, but I'm curious, uh, as CHDI, when you're looking at how school districts are responding, you have a specific case uh, with Stanford Public Schools. Tell us how they reached out to you. Yeah, so uh, Stanford had the unfortunate experience of um, a number of students who, who committed suicide a few years ago. And, you know, they made the bold decision at the time that we're going to do something about this and we want to go about it in a, in a comprehensive way. And um, I think what was really tremendous about Stanford's response is, first of all, they, they really were able to marshal the buy-in and support of a lot of really important people. They had some champions on their board that were really instrumental in making something happen um, and, and really identifying the funding to make sure that they could put the kind of supports into place to address the issue. They were also able to engage parents um, through their PTO and through the community to really get behind the initiative that they were uh, that they were looking to put into place within their district. And then a couple of champions within the school district, particularly Mike Meyer and Joe O'Callaghan, who were working in the, in the mental health, student support services, and social work area, um, who, who really worked hard to put some things into place within their district um, to make things better. And what I think was really important about their approach is, first of all, they, they paused and they took stock of what they already had in their district. Because the fact is that 
many school districts do have some resources that they can that they can put into place to to help with students who have mental health needs. Uh, so they contacted us. They asked us to help them with doing a thorough needs assessment of their district, looking across all their services and supports and all their schools. And this is a large district of about 16,000 students. And they asked the question, what do we already have and what are, what are our gaps and how can we most strategically deploy our resources to make sure we can address this issue and not duplicate things that are already out there? So that, I think that was the first thing that they did that was really important. And that was a, a process that guided the rest of their uh, work over the next couple of years. I'd say the second thing that they did in Stanford that was really critical was they invested in professional development and awareness among their school personnel and in their community. And they really focused their efforts around understanding the role of trauma and other mental health needs like depression and anxiety and how that impacts learning. So they always were making the connection within the school district between the mental health needs of students and their ability to learn. And they did training, community forums, and, and, and sought public input and really educated their their school community as well as their broader community around issues of trauma and mental health. I wanted to go back to Dr. Doreen Marshall uh, with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. We're hearing about a very specific example of a school uh, being, uh, you know, focusing the resources and time on this after seeing a series of tragedies. How are nationwide, how are you seeing schools responding uh, to uh, mental health uh, uh, of the students? Uh, you know, are schools in, in, in some ways becoming the de facto mental health treatment centers uh, these days? I, th- I think what's happening nationally is that schools are taking suicide and suicide prevention very seriously. Um, and in doing that, they're doing things very similar to what's been described here. They're training their staff to understand what warning signs or, or what risk um, they might notice in their students, and then also making sure that teachers, um, other school personnel can connect those students to help. I think it's actually been something that's happened nationally, where in some states it's been in legislation where they've required schools to implement suicide prevention training for their teachers and staff. So I I think it's actually seizing the opportunity. Schools spend a lot of time with our young people, and our young people spend a lot of time at school. So it really puts teachers and other school staff in a position to help parents and others trying to support student mental health. Um, And the other thing I wanted to mention is that at AFSP, we have a number of teacher training programs and other tools that both help schools that are trying to devise a policy on suicide prevention, but also uh, toolkits that help when a suicide death does occur in terms of helping the school respond. So I think there's some great things that are happening nationally that are really bringing this into focus in our school systems. I wanted to go back to our in-studio guest, uh, Dr. Irfan Munawar from St. Francis Behavioral Health. Uh, he's a psychiatrist, a child psychiatrist. Uh, we talked a little bit earlier. Uh, we're hearing now about how schools are responding, which is a good thing. Yes. But sometimes there can be pushback from parents about what is being talked about at school versus at home. So for parents who want to have a, a very candid conversation with their child, it doesn't have to be something um, couched by, uh, you know, if they notice their child being depressed, but just being proactive about talking about this. What are some quick tips that you can give us before the end of the show? Sure. Thank you. Um, so while it is very, very critical to have direct conversation 
open conversation, unbiased and being totally non-judgmental and supportive to them. However, I over the course of my working with parents and children and teenagers, sometimes it is very difficult to communicate. Sometimes it is such a heightened sensitivity around it that parents find it very uncomfortable or the teenager does not want to share because these are their very intimate thoughts and they do not think they can uh, talk about it that easily or want to disclose. Uh, to help with that, I have made several suggestions. For example, thinking about like a cheat word or a code word which you can use um, uh, as simple as that. Are you thinking about that? Uh, texting is something which is very helpful. Teenagers connect very well by texting. I have encouraged parents to, to utilize texting as a mode of communication with their teenagers. Uh, I have also uh, suggested different apps. For example, My3 is an app which can be downloaded, uh, which can help your teenager connect to not only to you, but also to their providers as well. So these are some of the resources helpful. And we know also locally there are different groups, including the Jordan Porco Foundation. Uh, this is an organization uh, founded to prevent suicide, uh, promote mental health, and also they engage uh, with peer-to-peer -peer, uh, students, student-led organization. We're going to tweet out that link at where we live. Uh, but I, I do want to thank our institute guest, Dr. Irfan Munawar, uh, chairman and director of St. Francis Behavioral Health, for joining the conversation today. Again, it's not an easy topic, and we hope that we did it in an effective way and got some good information out uh, to our listeners. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Munawar. Thank you. Also, Dr. Jeffrey Vanderplug, Vice President for Mental Health Initiatives at the Child Health and Development Institute of, of Connecticut. Uh, they work with school districts, including Stanford, uh, on many different um, issues, including suicide prevention and awareness. Thank you for your time. And Dr. Doreen Marshall, psychologist and vice president of programs at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Uh, today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Special thanks to Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf, WNPR's executive producer, Katie Talarski. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.